Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed this message in our current series. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas, Cape Cod Church. Can we just give it up one more time for our amazing guest brass band today? They rock. I love uh, Christmas at Cape Cod Church, and inevitably this month will be uh, some of my favorite messages of the whole year. And it's not just because Christmas is a special time, although that's true, and I love this time here. It's also because it's so easy for Christmas to become not special. Do you know what I mean? Every year we celebrate. It's an annual tradition. We often have these things that become familiar to us. We go back to the same story year after year, and it's easy because of that for the Christmas story to become ordinary, to become normal. And it's true that there's something that's sweet about that as well, something that's a well-worn tradition, that's just known and loved. But it's also true that it can become ordinary when it was never meant to be ordinary. In fact, the Christmas story is anything but, it's incredibly extraordinary. And so that's why I love this month at Cape Cod Church, when we get to take some time to come back to the story, to step back from the traditions and the things that we're used to, and to take a fresh look once again, to be reminded of how extraordinary this story is and how extraordinarily beautiful it is as well. And maybe you're here today, and you're actually not very familiar with the Christmas story. In fact, maybe that's why you're here. Uh, You came today hoping to bring some meaning into the season for you to learn something that might help you appreciate the season in a new way, in a deeper way. And if that's you, I am particularly excited that you are here today, because today we're going to take a look at something that we're probably all familiar with, even if you don't come from a religious background, something that in fact is so familiar that it can become ordinary, but when you take a look beneath the surface, the deeper meaning of it is something extraordinarily beautiful and a profound message for each of us. Today, I want to talk about the manger. A baby born in a manger. A feeding trough as a bassinet. One uh, scholar put it this way, the Christmas crib. No matter what background you've come from, you're probably familiar with this. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably know a little bit about the manger. It's the central piece to nativity scenes. It is the centerpiece of children's pageants. Kids all around the world will be donning bathrobes this week to huddle around this little piece of furniture. It features in hymns. It's central. And no matter your background, you probably know even a little bit about the story. You may be familiar with this idea. This young mother, Mary, because there was no room at the inn, her and her husband, Joseph, are forced to stay the night in a place that was meant for animals, and she ends up laying her son, her firstborn son, this baby, in a feeding trough as his crib, as his resting place, a manger. It's this beautiful, bittersweet, curious little detail in the narrative. So unique, in fact, that it's become really significant in Christmas tradition. It's this picture of humility and humanness, and it's become so big that many of us are familiar with it, even if you're not familiar with church. But what's interesting is when the texts that we have that bring us the Christmas story, what we now know is the Christmas story, but really that were written to be the origin of Jesus, when they were written, 
there was no Christmas tradition at all. In fact, the people who wrote down these stories didn't even know that there would someday be a Christmas, that there would be a holiday where we would celebrate the birth of this man, Jesus Christ. No, in fact, uh, the people who wrote down this story just did it because they wanted to document the life of Jesus. And yet, the manger features, features significantly prominently in this story. So prominently that it's almost bizarre. It's this curious little detail that just keeps popping up. And I want you to take a look with me at Luke 2 to see what I mean. We pick up in Luke 2, verse 7, and it says this. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him up and she put him to rest in a feeding trough because there was no room for them in the normal living quarters. So cue the kids in bathrobes. The story continues. There were shepherds in that region out in the open, keeping a night watch around their flock. An angel of the Lord stood in front of them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Don't be afraid, the angel said to them. Look, I've got good news for you, news which will make everybody very happy. Today, a Savior has been born for you, the Messiah, the Lord, in David's town. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped up and lying in a feeding trough. There's the manger again. And suddenly with the angel, there was a crowd of the heavenly armies. They were praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace upon earth among those in his favor. And now is the part in the pageant where the kids in bathrobes start talking with one another. They get their first big line. It says this, When the angels had gone away into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Well then, let's go to Bethlehem and see what it's all about. All this the Lord has told us. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the feeding trough. There it is again. When they saw it, they told them what had been said to them about this child, and all the people who heard it were amazed at the things the shepherds said to them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Do you see what I mean? No less than three times does the author, Luke, bring up the manger in this story. It comes first during the birth and his description of the birth of Jesus. It comes again when the angel mentions it in this message, the good news to the shepherds. And then finally again when the shepherds find Jesus and his parents, then they too mention the manger. And to understand what's happening here, why this keeps popping up, we need to know a little bit about the author, Luke. Now, there are two people who wrote down what we now know as the Christmas story, Matthew and Luke. But again, they didn't set out to write a Christmas story. They just wanted to record the life of Jesus years later. In fact, many people wanted to record the life of Jesus. And we know this from the scriptures that there are many accounts of Jesus's life. And when people would do this, they would often include some of their own personal reflections for those that were close to the movement. They would interview and talk with eyewitnesses who were close to Jesus and who were there for the events that happened. Sometimes they would even travel to the places, the significant places where Jesus had been and done his ministry. They would check into census data in each of the towns where Jesus had lived to look at some of his personal history. So they collect all this evidence to collect a, an accurate description of Jesus's life. But two of those authors went the extra mile. Matthew and Luke go all the way back to the beginning to record the birth of Jesus. And there's some suggestion that they likely talked with people who were there for it. They likely talked with his family members and maybe even his mother, Mary. 
And Luke is the one who brings us this story about the shepherds. He's the only one who has this story about the shepherds. And what you need to know about Luke is that he was a scrupulous researcher. He was careful about details. His account, more than any other, is chock full of detail. So for Luke to include this curious detail about a feeding trough that keeps popping up would not have been an accident. In fact, the manger that keeps popping up, when we look at the text, we realize that the manger was meant to be this curious detail, a weird proof that what the angels had said was true was, in fact, true. Now, to illustrate this point, I need to betray my age a little bit. Is anyone here familiar with Harry Potter? Show of hands. Most of you are at least somewhat familiar with Harry Potter. My guess is we all know it to some degree, but I am a millennial, which means that I am intimately familiar with Harry Potter. It's kind of our thing, I guess. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, um, in 2020, there was this uh, firestorm on social media because Gen Z, which is the generation that came after me, Gen Z got so fed up with being grouped in with millennials that they started making fun of them online for some of their hallmark traits, including being overly obsessed with Harry Potter and also with coffee. I don't know why that's true or why that's a bad thing personally, but it's probably just because I'm a millennial. Um, In fact, they started making fun of them on TikTok. And the funny part about the story is that the millennials didn't even realize it was happening until like a week later when it finally surfaced on Twitter. And that caused a whole firestorm on Twitter. Now, I read about this in a Business Insider article about Twitter, about TikTok. So I don't know what that says about me probably nerd, but I read some of what they wrote on TikTok, and I just want to share it with you because it's just, it's just too good. So this is what Gen Z said about millennials because they were so sick of being grouped into them. Tired of boomers bunching Gen Z and millennials together because I personally don't want to be associated with people who still think that Harry Potter movies are a personality trait. Next person said, all millennials know is go to coffee store, read a book, BuzzFeed, wear jeans with sneakers, take awkward coffee selfie, and be cringe. It's pretty harsh. (laughs) This next one cracked me up. They're the reason Forever 21 had shirts that said, it's finally Friday and rosé all day for so long. (laughs) All they do is drink wine, post cringy 90s kid meme, talk about tech startups, and lie. (laughs) I thought that was good. And then after that, like the, the comments just one after the other on this, this original video that got us started, they're so good and so creative. The future is bright. They said, and they say doggo. If you're familiar, then you're familiar. And what about the ones that name their kids after video game characters? And somebody said, you should say it. Millennials are monsters, and I stand by it. I think every generation can agree that millennials were a mistake. <laughs> How bad is that? This person said, they 29 years old and run purely on caffeine and quirkiness. <laughs> oh, that one was so good. It feels very personal. I'm 29. <laughs> and this last one, this is my favorite. Somebody wrote, wait until they talk about this on their podcast. <laughs> it's good because it's true. Imagine being such a hated generation that both all the generations in front of you and also the one after you hate you. It's like a special reward for millennials. 
If you're a millennial, we love you, it's okay. <laughs> the reason I share this is because I'm about to reveal my millennial knowledge and I hope that Gen Z will forgive me. Uh, are any of you, for those of you who are familiar with Harry Potter, do you remember in the first book where Harry Potter lives? He lives in a cupboard under the stairs. Some of you might know this from the movies or from your children or grandchildren, whatever. And for those of you who aren't familiar, basically Harry Potter, it's about a young boy who's a wizard. He lives with his aunt and uncle who are terrible people, but they have fabulous British names. They, he lives with them, they hate magic, and uh, when Harry is 11 years old, he finds out that he's a wizard because this wizarding boarding school sends him an invitation to live there. But his aunt and uncle are not happy about it, they don't want him to go. But do you remember where the school addresses his invitation letter? They address it, instead of addressing it to his house on Privet Drive, they address it specifically to Harry Potter, the cupboard under the stairs. Very specific, a little bit alarming. If you were his aunt and uncle, you would probably be freaked out by that too. Now they're very unhappy, they don't want him to go, so they just keep burning the letters, but the wizarding school keeps sending more and more and more letters. So eventually the aunt and uncle get so freaked out and fed up and a little bit embarrassed probably that they have put their nephew under the stairs that they give him his own bedroom. And do you know what happens next? Instead of giving up, the school sends more letters, but this time they address it to Harry Potter, the smallest bedroom on Privet Drive. Now, why does the school do this? I mean, in retrospect, it's a little bit creepy, but it's funny in a children's book. If this were to happen today, you and I would probably blame it on our phones listening to us, but they do this because the Wizarding School wants the family to know, we know that Harry is here. We know exactly where he's at. And they want them to know we know what's going on, and the proof is in this oddly specific detail. There's no bluffing, there's no guessing, we know exactly what's going on. This is kind of what's happening in this story in Luke 2, with the shepherds and with the angel. The angel shares this specific odd, unique detail about the birth of Jesus, not just because it's cute and quaint and odd and human, but because the angel wants the shepherds to know, I'm telling the truth, and here's how you'll know. This detail is so specific and so odd that if it's true, the fact, the message that I'm telling you will be undeniably true to you. In fact, take a look at what the angel says. Specifically, the angel says, this will be a sign for you. This is how you'll know I'm telling the truth. Look at the manger. And it's a good thing the angel shares this because there's evidence from the text that the shepherds are not 100% sure that they believe the angel. Look at what, how they respond. Instead of immediately worshiping and praising, what happens after the angels leave is the shepherds say, it says, when the angels had gone away into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, well then, let's go to Bethlehem and see what it's all about. All this that the Lord has told us. See what it's all about? The angel just gave you a full outline of what is happening. But the shepherds still, they turn to one another and it's like they're saying, that was kind of crazy. Do you think it could be true? Let's go find out. And they go to verify the sign that the angel has given them. 
to find this baby in a feeding trough in a manger. So they set off to Bethlehem. It says they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in a feeding trough. And when they saw it, they told them what had been said to them about this child. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Notice what it says. When they saw it, the manger, not him, the baby. When the shepherds see the manger, this sign, this signal that had been promised to them, they immediately believe. And it's then and only then that they leave glorifying and praising God for all that they had been told, but also all that they had been, all that they had seen. The sign that they had been promised, seen and manifested in that moment. And it's like they look and they're like, we weren't hallucinating after all. What the angel said was true. The Savior has come. Game on. The manger, this curious detail, is a sign. It's central to the story because it is a sign that what God had said and revealed to these shepherds was true. That God had revealed a piece of his plan, that God had sent a savior to the earth. And the manger, this curious detail is included because it is a sign that what God had revealed had in fact been true. In fact, this is just really cool. This language that the, that the angel uses, it's the same language that had been used throughout the Old Testament and throughout the nation of Israel's history when God had spoken through the prophets to other individuals. We see this again and again and again, in particular with kings throughout Israel's history. Oftentimes, when God would send a message, he would always speak through a prophet, and the prophet would go to a king, this happens with King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, to a young future King David. The prophet would go and he would tell them what God had spoken, some promise about the future, about the outcome of a war, about the king's own personal future, about something happening with their family. God would speak, and then sometimes, oftentimes, the prophet would say, and this will be a sign for you. Same language. This will be a sign for you. And they give some specific sign, something so unique that if it happened, they would know for sure God has spoken, God has revealed his plan. And oftentimes, throughout the Old Testament and in Scripture, we find that these divine encounters, particularly when they were unexpected, divine encounters are often associated with an experience of terror and awe. That this interaction with the divine was so intimidating. To, to be in contact with something so large, so magnificent, that people were often left in a state of both wonder and also fear and terror to see something so magnificent and great. We even see this uh, today. Psychologists who study people who've had unexplainable religious experiences, whether or not they're religious, but who would say something happened and I can only explain it as a religious experience, Psychologists who interview these people often would record testimonies of people experiencing this odd mix of awe, wonder, and terror. This feeling of being in the presence of something just so incredible. And we see this all throughout the history of Israel as well. So it's no wonder 
that when the shepherds receive this message, they too are in awe and terror. And just as God had spoken through the prophets to the kings of history and given them a sign, so too the shepherds get a sign and they are left in awe and terror. But the crazy part is that God had not spoken through the prophets, had not spoken to the nation of Israel in 400 years. For 400 years, God had been silent. No promises, no word, no more prophets until that night in the hills just outside Bethlehem when God gave a sign to a few lowly shepherds. And when they go and they see that this sign had in fact manifested, they leave worshiping and praising because they knew God has revealed something to us. He has revealed a piece of his plan. God has sent us a savior just as he had promised. But the manger is not the only curious thing in this story. And this is where it gets really good for us today. There are two things that are odd if you pay attention to it, and they're linked. The first is who the angel shares this message with, the shepherds themselves. In that time, shepherds were among the lowest ranks in society. In fact, uh, keeping a flock would not even have covered your uh, regular kind of expenses and taxes. Shepherds were oftentimes also hired hands. So these were really, um, as far as we can understand, peasants in the lowest ranks of society. And yet, the angel chooses to share the good news, God chooses to share the good news with these shepherds. They're the least likely of messengers to share the good news, especially when you consider that throughout history, God had often spoken to the leaders of nations, to kings, through prophets. But on this night, he shares his message with the most unlikely messengers, a group of lowly shepherds. And the second thing that's odd, that's really wild about this story when you think about it, is that This big reveal moment doesn't seem to have circulated very much at all. In fact, we know this because two years later, when three wise men or three magi, three kings, travel to come and try and find this baby, Jesus, when they travel and they go to King Herod and they ask him and all of his counselors, where is this baby so that we can come and worship him? Herod and his men, they have no idea. They have to go and search through history, but they certainly haven't heard about this baby born in a manger. Word at least hadn't gotten that far. And when you look at the text, there's no evidence that the people surrounding who the shepherds had shared this message with, that they had believed either. Look at verse 17. It says, when they saw it, they told Mary and Joseph what had been said to them about this child, the shepherds. And all the people who heard it were amazed at the things that the shepherds said to him. They were amazed. It was a wild story. But we don't see evidence that they believed. Now, some may have. But certainly, when the shepherds leave worshiping and praising, we're not seeing a similar outpouring in the crowd. In the very least, we know that this did not lead to some kind of cult following in which the story got shared and passed on. Because two years later, when the Magi come, Nobody knows about it, at least in the higher ranks of society. So it seems like the story, if it was even popular among some of the lower ranks in this town, didn't spread very far. 
And then when the family eventually, two years later, flees to Egypt and then relocates to Nazareth, the story falls into obscurity. It's not passed on, it's not well known. We know this because the only person who even has a record of it is this author, Luke. So why would God share his message with these unlikely messengers? these shepherds, who clearly did not do the best job of spreading the news. If you are going to start a movement, this is not the people that you choose to share the message with. So why are the shepherds there? Why are they the chosen ones to receive this story? In 1961, uh, the Russians put the first man on, uh, into space. His name was Yuri Gagarin. And at the time, uh, the prime minister of Russia was a man named Nikita Khrushchev. And Nikita Khrushchev said that when Yuri went into space, he discovered that there was no God. He went into space, he did not see God, and discovered that there was no God after going into space. And in response to this, C.S. Lewis, who was alive at the time, wrote an article called The Seeing Eye. And C.S. Lewis argued back and said, you cannot understand or discover the existence of God by going into the air. Because God does not relate to humans the way a person on the second floor relates to somebody on the first floor. C.S. Lewis said, if you want to understand God, you have to understand him like Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. Shakespeare, the playwright, is the creator of Hamlet, his character's world. He's the creator of Hamlet, his world, and everything in it. And if Hamlet wants to know anything about his creator, if Hamlet wants to know anything about Shakespeare, the only way he will know about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes information about himself into the play. And so C.S. Lewis argued, the only way that humanity can know about God is if God writes information about himself into our world. The only way for us to know God is if God reveals himself. The claim of Christmas is one step further. Tim Keller noted this. Christmas is an instance in which God did not just reveal information about himself, but actually wrote himself into the play as a character. All throughout history, God had been giving hints to the nation of Israel and to the world, sending them promises, revealing bits of his character, bits of his plan, visions for the future, speaking to them through prophets, through law, through revelatory moments. He had been laying hints, writing information about himself into the play. But on Christmas, that night in Bethlehem, God wrote himself into the play as a character. Why? Because God was not just revealing his plan to the shepherds. God was revealing himself. And God did not just come so that you and I and all the world could be saved. God came, God made himself one of us so that he could know us so that you and I could relate to him like a friend. He didn't just reveal his plan. 
He didn't just send a savior, he became the savior. He became the savior so that you and I could know him personally, could talk back and forth, could sit down, have a conversation, have a personal relationship with him, our creator, so that we could relate like friends. The big reveal of the Christmas story was not that God had sent a savior, it was that God had sent himself, had become one of us, had written himself into the play as a character. And the crazy thing is that on that night in Bethlehem, most people, if anybody, fully realized what had happened that evening. Christmas night, that night in Bethlehem, that was the big reveal. God incarnate, come to become one of us. But it would take about 33 years until people realized what had happened. 30 years later, a man named Jesus would start doing miracles, would amass a following, would be killed, and then three days later, his disciples would claim that something had happened that was extraordinary, that he had risen from the dead. It would spark a movement that would grow and grow and grow despite persecution, despite opposition, it would grow, it would it'd explode, and it would change the world. And the people who were a part of that movement would record the events of what had happened so that no one would miss out. A man named Luke would record these events in light of the life of Jesus. And then and only then would people realize what had happened on that night. Because 33 years later, looking back, they realized this was not just God revealing himself to some lowly shepherds. This was God come to be with us. And the reason he had shared the message with these shepherds is that he had come for all of us. Not just to speak to kings and to prophets and to leaders of nations, not just to make a plan for our salvation, but to know us. From top to bottom, each of us, each and every one of us, to know us personally. And you can almost imagine Luke sitting down to record this history, talking with Jesus's mother or his brother, some of his family members, hearing about this night for the very first time in light of the man he knew, who he loved, who he worshiped now as God, hearing the story and being like, what? He shared his message with some shepherds? Of course he did because that's who he was. He wanted to know us. We knew him as a friend. We believe that God continues to speak today. And not often through angel choirs. No, it's even better than that. Because of the sacrifice, the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we believe that we can each speak with God personally, can know him intimately in a personal relationship. And it may just be the case that this Christmas, God is trying to speak to you. Maybe he's been trying to speak to you for a long time because he loves you. He wants to know you, be known by you, to know in personal relationship because he adores you. And this Christmas, this is my challenge to you. Do not miss the opportunity to speak to him, to hear from him to hear from him anew because he speaks to us every single day. And if he's been knocking on your door, do not let this Christmas pass you by without opening to see 
if what the angels said could really be true, that there is a God who loves you and wants to have a personal relationship with you. Don't let the manger just be a manger. Pay attention to what it points to, a God who wants to know you. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, you've never invited God into your life, started a conversation with him, I wanna give you an opportunity to do that this morning. So Cape Cod Church, will you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, today we come and uh, we're so grateful that we get to celebrate Christmas. The coming of your son in your nature, come to become one of us. Thank you for writing yourself into our story so that we could know you, not only as a father, but as a friend. Father, if there's anybody here who's never known that relationship, I just wanna give them the opportunity to talk with you, to invite you into their life, it's just a simple conversation. There's no right or wrong way to do it, but perhaps it would sound something like this. God, I know you've been knocking on my door probably for longer than I realize. Today, I wanna to invite you into my life. I believe that what the angel said is true that you made a way for salvation, that you sent your son to be the sacrifice for my sin and failure. I believe that he was God. And I believe that his sacrifice makes a way for me to know you, and today I wanna to accept that gift. Jesus, I accept your gift of forgiveness. Help me to experience and discover a full life with you in relationship with you. Father, if there's anyone here who's known you for a long time but hasn't spoken to you, anyone for whom Christmas has just become tradition, a road experience, Father, we just pray that you would speak to us. Help us to pause, to step back, to experience your presence this Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.